Hi, it's Tim. Just doing another little intro for Death of a Thousand Cuts because today I've got another chat for you. This time with author Jeanette Ng. We talked about her book Under the Pendulum Sun, which is a rich and fantastical novel set in an in an alternative Victorian age in which, as well as the world as we know it, there is also the continent of Arcadia, which is home to the fair folk, the fae, the, uh, the weird and wonderful denizens of our collected imagination. And, of course, missionaries go out there to try and spread the Gospels to the heathens there. And the story follows one Catherine Helston who heads out to try and see what has become of her missionary brother who, after a series of terse missives, has not been responding. I really, really enjoyed talking to Jeanette. I realise my saying before these episodes, oh, it was really good, doesn't carry much currency because... I am not a credible advocate for my own podcast. However, I don't need to worry about that because you're going to get to hear yourself in a minute. I just found it. I'm being genuine. I suppose the reason I'm saying that is just because I want to be... There's no point me doing this. If I'm super... It's never going to be super slick and professional, is it? So the only thing I've got is just being myself and the hopefully the weird intimacy that that creates. I just feel like uh, Jeanette is so compelling and just genuine about writing and her love of world building and you'll listen during the talk it was just such a treat for me because I think she might be the first fantasy author I've talked to on here who am I missing I feel like I'm missing someone out I think she might be and well certainly the first gothic fantasy author which that is more or less the genre of my debut the honors so it was a real real treat to speak to her. and as you hear we talk about world building we talk about we get super inside baseball nerdy and we talk about western vampires versus chinese vampires the jiang shi we talk about zombies we talk about drow and dungeons and dragons we talk about we talk about putting a world together as well and we ping pong from colonialism to what makes a gothic novel a gothic novel the elements of the atmosphere that they need to contain and we talk about what it's like to to write and where we both come from Jeanette talks a bit about growing up and how that's influenced her. Well, we talk about the Brontes. It's just such a far-ranging... I love that I can have these talks and go all over the shop. If you're not a genre writer, I still think there's going to be a lot in it for you. You can just see it as a kind of safari round, uh, a, a different form that you don't write in. Of course, you may be inspired to at least read Jeanette's fantastic book. Uh, it's published by Angry Robot in the UK, under the pendulum sun i'll put a link in the show notes and you can click through and if you don't want to go to your local shop and get it then you can just click that link and get it post free and doing so also helps to support the podcast speaking of which before we get into the actual talk i just want to say to you this podcast is all put together by me uh, from my own home uh, a lot of the interviews i've done in my house uh any support you can give is don't yet have a sponsor. I've had and I've had a couple of offers as well. I have had sponsors email me, but I just didn't feel that they were right. If at such stage I get someone approach me who I think is offering something that you might genuinely want to hear about and seems like an all right product, then of course I'll do that to help defray my expenses so I can keep giving you hopefully good content that helps you that makes you feel less alone as a writer or just makes you feel interested and inspired and gives you a kind of fizzy head by the end of it but um for the moment 
the way I fund this is well, I don't. I, I'm losing <laughs> losing money, but I enjoy it, which is why I'm doing it. I find it it's just hugely, and I love you guys sending me emails. Um, I've, it's been great the correspondence I've got into with some of you over like the Couch to Eighty K Writing Bootcamp. Uh, which if you don't know and you're listening to this now, what on earth are you doing? It's a free eight-week writing course um, that I've put all online for free, daily 10-minute exercises that build up into an eight-week course that take you from wherever you are in your writing to being ready to finish your first novel. Uh, So the things you can do to support the podcast, buy Jeanette's book, please, like, I think it's just support the authors who come on here. Jeanette gave up her time to talk, uh, was really really interesting i think by the end you will want to read this book but please go and click the link and and buy her book i'm an author that's how i pay the bills uh just about and uh, my book's called the honors it's a kind of similar genre and i if you haven't bought yourself a copy yet that's the best thing you can do to support me is is buy my book and help me that's what's going to let me continue writing stories i also happen to think it's quite a good book and i'm not the only person who thought that as well there's reviews on my website you can check it out for yourself the honours, I'll put a link up to that as well. Finally, I set up a little page through the website Coffee, and you can click through there and chuck me a couple of bucks if you like the show, if you get value out of it, if you've done the Couch for 80k course and you want to give me a little something back. Uh, it's all goes into, I've just paid like 120 quid in hosting fees to keep my website up because it kept crashing. Uh, I have to pay to be on SoundCloud. That's another, uh, goodness knows how much a year. But those are all, I I would like to be able to do this without it costing me money, apart from the time that I put into it. Um, If you can help me, I would love that. Uh, Don't feel, if if you don't, of course, don't feel obligated. I want this to be a resource that anyone can access, anyone with an internet connection can access. I'm not trying to exclude people without an internet connection. I just don't currently have the resources to to beam this directly to your skulls, but God willing, someday I will. The point being, uh, I don't want there to be any barrier to anyone using this because there's too much of that in the the industry already. There's too much that is only available to people with A, loads of free time and B, loads of wonga and a safe cushion of it to fall on should things not work out the way they want to so it's just if you have got a little bit of spare change lying around and you want to help me keep the lights on i'd most appreciate that i won't waffle on any longer because i just i don't want you to switch off when you could speak to Jeanette. oh and the last thing you do if you like this subscribe on soundcloud subscribe and rate us on itunes all of that helps it helps with the algorithm it helps us just get it to you because the you know i put these out a weird time sometimes i put out two episodes a week three episodes a week sometimes i put out one the days change so anything like that will just help you get it and help me make sure it reaches the widest audience and just like share it please because like when we had the uh when life hacker decided to do a article on the on the couch to 80k writing boot camp Lifehacker has like is followed on Twitter by over four million people, right? And the numbers just went through the roof. It's been crazy, and as a result, that might be how you found us. Actually, you know, as a result, we've now got a kind of healthy audience, and I, I couldn't be happier. So, anything you can do to signal boost, to spread the word, and it's just going to help, and it just lets the world know about these uh, wonderful authors, some of whom are best-selling authors and uh, don't necessarily need the signal boost but are wonderful talented authors nonetheless and uh, could really really use well look i'm talking about me you should help me because i love you okay i'm gonna go now Uh, this is my chat with Jeanette ing i hope you enjoy it sorry about that okay i'm just do a little intro and then we can begin Cool. If I get the giggling fit, you're going to edit that, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> Although all all of the episodes so far, I think all of the have got some giggles in, so it's not not entirely off brand. Okay, I'll just do my little intro and then we can get started. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare. As you well know, I am a writer, anxious poet, and now hairy dad. I am doing another uh, chat with an author. I'm so thrilled and excited and uh, obviously uh, you're used to my bumptious ways now but they are they are not 
in any way put on because I have got via Skype uh, the author Jeanette Ng. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, hello. Uh, I'm, I'm Jeanette Ng. I, I am here on this podcast. <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> I'm, I'm not good at introductions. This is terrible. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, have a, I, I have a kind of like, I've built oh. up that intro uh, over over episode after episode and um it's a, it's a little bit automatic now it just comes through me it's kind of like a channeling i was going to talk to you today about your book which i have been reading and thoroughly enjoying uh, under the pendulum sun and i guess not to be too conventional but i wanted to kind of begin at the beginning question and ask you you said reading have you finished it are we are, is, i haven't finished it is this it a yet. spoilers interview because that that is that is important <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we can be as spoilery or as unspoilery as you like. I'm precisely 50% of the way through at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, I was going, I'm completely spoiler agnostic. If you want to, if you, how how you feel about that is totally fine. Yep, I, I'm me. just flagging that up because it's, um, it, it's, it's a spoiler book, I suppose. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to talk about. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about. Because this book is, in so many ways, in my wheelhouse. It's so many things about it I love. But just to get us focused and get us started, I wanted to ask, how did you get started in writing? You know, as a writer, where did it begin for you? I have a very boring answer, because my answer is just, I, I've been... I, I wanted to write for about as long as I can remember, which is tedious as an answer. I mean... I, I roll my eyes when other people say this. I, I remember being in kindergarten, like scratching stories onto little bits of paper and stapling them together and then stapling my thumb because I was not a very coordinated child. I remember asking people how to spell certain words as a child. Oh, my father once uh, edited my work, I still have it, um, where I, I tell this harrowing story about how I got locked out of my mother's office um, and had to walk down 37 flights of stairs by myself as a child um, and, then, and then he kind of gave it back to me um, with kind of covered in red going were you locked in a dairy this is a diary not a dairy um, throughout the margins um, so that that shaked me so you had a sense of vocation from a very young age that it was ne- it was never an unusual or absurd or far-flung idea to write stories because for some people it is oh, yeah, right? no, for some people the idea that you can do it is, is 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 inconceivable that they could be one of those people who make stories i mean i also wanted to be a ballerina and an artist and and um i also wanted to act and and i wanted to you know be a princess so you know it, it was you impose a narrative onto your own memories as everyone does so i mean i suppose if i became a ballerina I would say oh yes I knew from a young age um I was always going to be a ballerina so writing was always something I I knew I wanted to do um and I I retold a lot of fairy tales I mean a lot of my early work is unsurprisingly shit because I was six but um but yeah (laughs) I I, I don't have good juvenilia some people have good juvenilia. The Brontes wrote excellent stuff when they were kids. I mean, their role-play game notes are genius. Mine are not. <laughs> I, well, all of us, I guess, like, the the, the Brontes is a, is a pretty tough act to, to follow in terms of uh, juvenilia. And you mentioned, like, getting these, no- these notes back from your dad, like your first copy edit. Did that make you feel... Did that make you feel like a like a real writer, or was it dispiriting? Or oh, it was anguishing. It was awful. Um, I got very cross with him um, about it because it was just so very profoundly <laughs> unencouraging. But um, <laughs> um, oh no, I was going to say, and yet you continued writing. You know? Yeah, I mean, I was very stubborn, um, and I had a lot of teach. I, I I mean I I pity every single English teacher I ever had because I I made them read my work and that was always, <laughs> and you know I oh, I remember one of them kind of saying to me I I, I normally read you know I was like crime thrillers or something because she she was not impressed by you know my fantasy world building, uh she was a serious um reader and writer so I it's um and not all my family 
uh, are literate in English, I suppose, or not very literate in English, or rather don't read novels for fun. So anyone who was kind of more fluent in English, I would inflict my writing on them. Um, and, and then they would always kind of roll their eyes and go, what is this? But yeah, despite all that, I kept writing. I've got such, my heart is swelling like several sizes bigger than it normally would be at the moment because I had such a similar experience as a child. And I remember, I remember taking into my English teacher two folders with like Ooh. a 90,000 word novel in oh, oh, and, yes. and saying, would you have a look at this for me? And I, I, I viscerally remember the bang each folder made as it landed on his desk. Like they were that heavy and it was not a good novel. <laughs> I know you'd expect it to be bad, but it was really bad. <laughs> and I, I even, I remember being like 12, 13, and I, I put one of my drafts onto the folder that my friend and I were, we were, we were doing a project together, basically. Uh, I, and I, I, I couldn't bring myself to ask her to read it. So I put it on there in hopes that she would read it. <laughs> that she would just happen, just happen across, across, across it, it and, say... and then tell me what a genius I was. <laughs> Well, this is the thing is like you're often so <laughs> caught between those two contradictory modes of like real fear of rejection and these florid fantasies of tears and flowers, yeah, right? Absolutely. Of someone reading this and going, what is this? It's it's beautiful. I... <laughs> well, well the, the ending to that story is then we tried because we ended up trying to stage one of my plays um, when we were like 12 Wow. Um, and it was awful. Uh, we never got to stage the play. It was awful on basically every conceivable level. But we did have eat a lot of pizza and have a lot of parties. So that was good. I, I wonder, do you think there's something about writing when you're young and maybe your awareness of how good you are hasn't built up yet Ooh, yeah. that actually allows you to get through a certain body of work and a self-conscious stage that it's harder to as an adult because you have enough critical faculties to go this is bad oh I'll just stop I very viscerally remember um my late English teacher and this is gonna be a bit of a rambling anecdote but um he was a big fan of um the late Princess Diana um and he was at one of those things where there were there's a book where you all got to write in your feelings um and he was in the queue to write in one of these kind of memorial books and he was very very emotional about this because you know he was just he was he was very upset and and had many many strong feelings he wanted to express and he was also a poet so you know he 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 had like in his notebook all the poems he's written about her and he was you know having all these feelings and also was completely blocked because everything he thought about to write was he thought was shit and in front of him was a pair of teenage girls who when they got to the book they just wrote pages and pages and they just poured their heart out and and he couldn't do that and then he always talked to like he loves to talk about how he envies the young how he envied those two teenage girls who could just without zero filters just go all our feelings and you know they they tears in their eyes and, and all that stuff and and then he couldn't like and in the end he wrote like two lines of very sorry for your loss and walked off and i always think about that um that little parable if you will because because that's kind of where i'm at where i I get very blocked up and I get very, I can't possibly write that. This is terrible. I must re-write write, write the sentence another 20 times. Uh, and so I, I think about that a lot. That's really wonderful, actually. Thank you so much. That's a really, I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people <laughs> listening, that sense of, of not being able to get through to a, a first draft out of a sense of preemptive a shame avoidance, right? Of like avoiding embarrassment, avoiding that fear of messing up. Someone a lot wiser than me on the internet um, called it the uh, the twin principles of um, um, fuck it and burn it. So, um, and they're the two very important instincts to have, where you know you just go fuck it and just write it all. I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. I hope so. Yes, of and, course. And, yeah, and please go burn ahead. Burn it where you acknowledge it was just awful, and you just get burn it all um and you need to kind of navigate these two in a sort of happy medium because too much of one you get you get nothing done or you get too much rubbish yeah it's the sin and repent model right yeah. where you kind of like you get to you get to let your creative genius you just sort of unchain them 
and uh, release them in a room with paints and all the materials they want. And then you just kind of lock the door and there's explosions and noise from upstairs. And then the next day you kind of walk into the mess and look at it and see if there's any art that can be salvaged from this explosion of um, wanton creation. Yes, though knowing someone who works like that, um, writing with intentionality is also important. In that case, can I just, I'd really love to talk about Under the Pendulum Sun, which is your new novel. So the first thing, I mean, like I say, I just, there's so many angles I could come come from it. It just sparked so many ideas in my head, but I'm... I just wanted to go, how did you happen upon this particular story? Where did it, where was its genesis for you? So, thank, um, fortunately, there's, a, there's actually a, a very defined um, origin story for, for Pendulum Sun. So, I was an undergrad um, and we were bored in the library uh, and we kind of wandered into the old books area and found a series of old Victorian missionary manuals. Um, and, you know, they're all in their kind of old Victorian binding and so forth. And and these were the days when we were students and we didn't, we, we still, correction, we still don't own a TV. But um, in those days, we would sit around my living room and read to each other as for fun. Uh, we, we used to also read romance novels and play drinking games, but that's different story. And we ended up reading the missionary manual to each other and kind of making fun of it and joking. Because it was incredibly racist, to say the least. And and they would describe the people they were evangelizing to in quite horrid terms and very inhuman terms. And what stuck with me, um, and this kind of makes it into the final in the final novel, which is a bit where they describe um, the Chinese as having two eyes, two ears, a nose and a mouth, and two legs, two hands, and all the liniments you know you'd expect with human being. Um, in, in that kind of tone of voice, as though they didn't expect that. And this was surprising, and this is information. Wow. And it, it's amazingly othering. And I can't remember which chapter it is, it's like chapter 13 or something, where where this exact same passage uh, gets applied to the fairies. I've just literally just found and replaced the word the Chinese with the fairies. And And somewhere along this conversation where we were talking about missionaries and the people they were talking to, um, who obviously are people and not otherworldly beings, um, that it would be kind of funny if these Victorian missionaries actually met otherworldly, lying, devious people that weren't people, that were exactly like these passages described. Um, I thought that would be cool and that that would be their comeuppance. And so I wrote that book. Or I, I didn't write that book. I, I began that book and then failed to write it. And then about a decade later, uh, came back to it and mashed it up with a gothic novel. Yes, this is what, because this is the thing that you've done so beautifully, is take some of these tropes and that real, the kind of, I, I feel like as I'm reading it, it has this feverish, hallucinatory intensity it's got like some of the things we associate with the gothic novel but if the person was the if the protagonist was like running a really really high temperature and was floridly hallucinating for the entire time and i i really really got that kind of claustrophobia of the uh, of the gothic form and the mystery of the gothic form and the um suppressed emotions of the gothic form but but with just this absolutely mind-blowingly vivid and florid world that actually exists beyond it. It's, you know, it's, it's with those visions being true as well. Yeah. I, I just wanted to ask, I guess, like something that I was personally interested in was why, why the Fae? Because th- there are lots of creatures you could have used to serve as the um, exoticized other. You could have had, you know, aliens yep, or yep. angels or vampires. Um, but you've chosen the fair folk, and I'm sure you did that. You know, you were interested in the fair folk, the gentry below. There must, I know that there was a reason for that, and I'm just wondering <laughs> if you could talk a bit about what oh, in, about them in particular drew you to them. I don't, I don't know, because I, I honestly just... It was from those descriptions I, I was reading, and perhaps it's just the Victorian flair of it. They just... 
we were reading those to each other and just went, oh, these are the fae. The, the, the bit where it says they're always lying. They're incapable of telling the truth. These are totally fairies. They didn't go to China. They went to fairyland. We, we said to each other as we read these, you know, we were, we were joking because um, reading horrifying Victorian texts was a thing we did. Um, so, so I don't think I ever thought of using a different other, um, um, which I know isn't a very satisfying answer. But as it kind of went on, it, it clicked because because the nature of the fairies and all that becomes part of the story that becomes that becomes sort of the revelations and the gnostic mystical themes of it kind of come to the fore i i i'm not sure where 50 percent is but it, it gets it ramps up yeah no i was because i was gonna say i i feel like at the moment where where i'm at and i I've, you know for our for the listeners because i want you know, I'm sure that they're um, going to be interested in reading it themselves. I'm going to try and I'll, I'll dance around a few of the things that have been revealed or, already. But all right, I'll, actually, I'll, one thing I wanted to talk about, you, you've got, um, can we talk a bit about your protagonist? That'd be sure. a good way of sort of like uh, grounding some of this. Um, so you, Catherine Helston, she's, I mean, in some ways, in some ways as a character, she's kind of, she's she's very kind of layered and complex because on one level she has uncritically swallowed a lot of the narratives that she's been brought up with and so her arrival is this huge culture shock where she's seeing so many things she's kind of got to unpick those those ways of seeing Mm. to be able to just process what she's seeing to be able to see what's in front of her eyes but on the other hand she's 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 driven she's resourceful like I say I want to avoid spoilers but the first time um, we see her like really put her foot down and and stand up to a particular someone i I was like yes finally it was such a a thrill yeah but also um because she she does it so she's actually she's actually got all these other qualities of her ability for diplomacy and for a certain level of um double talking herself you know she knows how to kind of like talk to people and kind of try and win them round and she's she's very perceptive about ways of winning people over and I just why was she the person that you chose to show us this world you you know you said that you kind of left this story and came back to it did the first version have her in no she didn't she was she was the late edition she came with the gothic overlay so the first version was just a missionary going slowly insane in fairyland it doesn't go very well for him um it's a sort of descent into darkness type story um and i always had a sort of the idea that was going to be a predecessor and a a current missionary and the predecessor would be leaving clues and hints to the later one and and there would be this relationship where you're not quite sure what happened so it's it's a bit heart of darkness it's a bit um i mean even say uh silence the film and the book are both structured around the idea of a, a preceding missionary who who you're looking for I and mean, he, he wasn't called Lound then but we had a, a missionary who who is the focal point and we had a changeling uh, we had ariel um ariel davenport was always there because i wanted I, I loved the idea of someone who was human but not quite human who was that kind of bridging point um between the two a lot of it owes to was it calculator magic um it was one of those old kind of old fantasy novels but it had the idea of changelings existed in order to kind of antagonize their their supposed parents and i and i like that idea where they are there's always something off about them and intentionally about the the fabric of who they are so that made it in and yeah so Basically, that that whole edifice didn't work out uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because I don't finish novels. I only write the first like 10,000 words and then give up. That's 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 my pattern. But it was when I started thinking about the Gothic novel as a form and it was shortly after I saw kind of Crimson Peak um, and I was having kind of a, a Gothic kick. Um, and I also read uh, Flowers in the Attic, just a whole bunch of Gothic books at the same time. And and I was thinking about like the tropes of the Gothic and the structure of the Gothic, about how you have the big house, the girl, the mysterious brooding master of the house. And you have all these elements. And, and sort of the question I was asking was like, oh, can, can you actually write a fantasy version of the Gothic? Because Gothic novels often tease um, the fantastical, but aren't themselves usually fantastical so say Jane Eyre you have you have the hint Mm. of ghosts and you have the hint of the supernatural but it doesn't you know it it resolves that actually the the attic isn't haunted it's actually just a human 
And that's that's very often the revelation in the Gothic that that the monster is human. Uh, Mysteries of Udolfo kind of does that as well a bit, except they're also kind of our ghosts. Mysterious. It's the Victorians. Um, so since the revelation of it's actually humans is so important to the Gothic, can you write one where the supernatural is real? Was kind of a question I was asking myself. And uh, long story short, I arrived at using the Victorian protagonist perceiving the fey world and having those rules as a way of playing with that structure. I, I, I feel a lot of the things of what you're saying because mm. in when I wrote The Honours, people... <laughs> Some readers are furious with me that, that that we have a story with a big house, a girl, a mysterious messages, kind of uh, searching around, and then, spoiler, halfway through, <laughs> there is a fantasy element. People are so angry. Some people are so angry. Yeah. They feel tricked because you're right. The kind of expectation of the form is now you of course are there's yes. no ambiguity from the first page we are we are we know that this is a world in which the the world of the fair folk exists that is a a, a foundational fact of the world but what you tease throughout and in these wonderful fragments of uh, found text at the beginning of each chapter is that there's lots of attempts by people to kind of rationalize what they see to find logical explanations and to put it all through okay sure well actually can i this brings me on to my next question quite uh, uh, uh sort of unrealistically elegantly actually but you've got this very pointed passage early on that to me feels like a cipher for some of what's to come um if it's all right with you i just want to it's very short but i just wanted to read it because just sure, for sure. the listeners it says you, you, um, it's not like i would remember it Uh, Catherine says, um, But for all our stories, our imaginations were small and provincial. For the talk of tropics and deserts, our childish fictions filled them with the same oaks and aspens that grew in our garden. We built on their landscape exotic buildings that were just our little whitewashed church in Birdforth in disguise. We rained down on strange soil the same Yorkshire rain as that which drenched our skins and drove us inside peeling off our clothes, housebound by the weather and desperate for diversion. As such, I could never have imagined Arcadia. (laughs) What beautifully cadenced sentences, by the way. Uh, Just, sorry, that's my poet side coming up. I definitely felt like one of the things that this novel does is like explore this distorting, disfiguring ubiquity of the colonial imagination. Mm. And, And this is a universe where... All of what I suppose we think of the normal predations of Western colonialism have gone on as well. So the land of the Fey exists alongside Africa and India and China, and but it's distinct from all three because they're not humans. And I'd like, I just wondered if you could talk a bit about why it was important to you that you didn't supplant that part of history. That passage was me just subtweeting the uh, the Brontes. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're aware, but the Brontes in their juvenilia. Um, they made up all these fantastical countries. Um, oh, yes, uh, I have heard Angria that a little was bit, one of but them. Go, go. Yes. Uh, well, I, I just kind of borrowed their backstory um, of the Brontes for the Hellstones because I, I'm a hack like that. But one of the things that become very <laughs> obvious that they're writing about these fantastical places, um, but whenever they start describing things, it's like, oh, isn't this just Yorkshire? <laughs> and... And I was just having a... So it was, to an extent, that was just a kind of an allusion to the idea that, well, that, that we, we, we imagine what we, we know. We imagine what we see, uh, but bigger. And, and to an extent, subtweeting a lot of people's world building, that, that we we end up switching up what we know to, to create these fantastical worlds. But often our imagination has these limits that, that we're just kind of palette swapping the things that we know rather than exploring the actually alien which which i don't think is itself a criticism but but i was having a bit of fun hmm. with that but yeah sorry colonialism colonialism is 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 unless it's is a theme in the book but it, it doesn't deal with it as head-on as say something like sorcerer to the crown does it's much more circuitous um about what it has to say uh, some of what happens to the missionaries do does kind of parallel what happens to real world missionaries in the sense that the ones who went to China did have to deal with a powerful queenly figure who denied them access well to to the rest of the country because China was that closed off you had the whole 
begging to have access. I mean, the traders did this as well, the whole kind of begging for access um, via a queen. I, I didn't do this on purpose, but I suspect in retrospect uh, uh, that probably kind of bubbled up in my subconscious, um, though she wasn't queen as much as she was queen mother, but details. So there's that. I guess what I was in, interested in is the fair folk in this story are not supposed to be sort of stand-ins for no. anyone else. Although you were inspired by those those missionary manuals, they're not actually supposed to... They are distinct. They're not just an easy kind of one-for-one one swap for any other culture because there's just... Because the sun is literally a pendulum, right? Because there's stuff yes. that they can do. That, and I, I, I guess what I was interested in is this idea of... Well, this kind of thorny topic of... I think a lot of literary readers, when they're reading fantasy, are looking for what is this supposed to represent so they can do a kind of one-for-one analogue mm. and then they get what it means and they can go away. Mm. And I think what you're doing is more interesting and complicated than that. And I don't know the answer to this, but for you, what is the... I guess I guess the core question at the bottom of this is what does fantasy allow you to do that, say, writing straight historical fiction or writing, you know, like a gothic novel with a... With, with a protagonist where everything turns out to be rational, you know, like Sco- Scooby-Doo. Yeah. What, what is it allowing you access to that, a, 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 that social realism doesn't? Oh, God. Uh, this guy's not really pretentious. Um, Good. <laughs> I, I like the idea of having metaphors be literally true and that when you explore the metaphor that way, you you kind of fumble towards some idea of some newer truth because you're examining that metaphor to its logical or illogical conclusion so the sort of like ah yes my lover was like a gazelle and you you kind of go okay sure your lover's like a gazelle and then you write that you you, she is literally a gazelle um and this this gets all very dubious because I, i don't know anything about gazelles but i assume she runs the hills and you know isn't very human. And is, is I, I eaten, eaten by um, eaten by lions? Eaten by lions, I assume. Yeah, they're chased by lions, and and there, there you have problems, and and that's a story. And I think my point being that that lens is informative in some way, and in this case, a literalizing of the other. There's um there's a passage somewhere where one of the fairies kind of talks about how humans are obsessed with them with with the fairies that they want to meet the fairies everywhere they meet because they're transfixed by this idea of the other and that they can't see each other people because they see the fairies instead and that the fairies are meant to be this this scary thing that people impose on people who are different than them who are you know who live the next village over or the next country over or the next continent over um and that they they end up pretending that they're dealing with the fairies instead of the actual people who are there and that's kind of who the fairies are in the story they are they are all the fears of the other and it is interesting to me to have them confront that rather than have the reveal be actually they're people and they're comprehensible by pupil means um and that you you have and, and that they are <sighs> normal underneath it all yeah yeah for for while while acknowledging the, the the kind of slightly slippery problematic kind of term normal right that there's because to me I, I think that's so that's so great all of that is I'm my, I feel like my mind's being blown here with all the stuff I'm okay. gonna have to go away and, and contemplate but sorry. to me it's like fairy what I really got out of this was uh is that I, I think about how I guess by the adjacent metaphor, how the how the Fae have been used in the UK as, you know, they, they change depending on the, the climate. So down in the south, the fairies are all lovely and they, they take you away and you get drunk and they take you under the hill. And all you've got to do is make sure you come out before morning, otherwise you'll die. But then as we move further north and we get into subsistence farming areas, there are more people you have to bargain with. And they're slightly more dangerous and they're kind of like morally neutral. And then once you get into the kind of the the north and into Orkney, they are lethal predators who will burst out of the night and devour you. But certainly down 
it, it, sort of the more southern versions of the fairies, they aren't. I, don't, I read uh, Jeremy Hart's wonderful uh, book on fairy traditions, and he talks about them having this kind of like great explanatory power to the, especially to the Victorian mind, where they answer questions about life that we don't understand. You know, they why won't my butter come in the churn? Where did my wife disappear to for two weeks? Why don't I love my baby? And, and and the Fae kind of rush in. And they almost have, to me at least, a a kind of conservative power because they allow all the all the desires, all the repressed desires of a nation to be of a culture to be kind of safely siphoned off into this other. And that's what I got from the Fae in this. That especially with, you know, Catherine, there's underneath, you know, what she tells us, there's this real kind of luscious, feverish passion going on and sense of adventure and uh, sensuousness. And and it feels like the Fae get to be a sort of safe repository for for all of the stuff that a cult, that the culture cannot acknowledge in itself, as well as being literally magical. Oh, I love that. Oh, can I just say... Yeah, can I can I steal that? I'll say yeah. What you said, you're right. Absolutely, I'm, well done. I, 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 no, I beg. My, I, I do apologise. I'm not trying to explain your book back to you. I, no, no, I love it. I love it. Like it's you're you're right. I I I can't say anything better than that. I don't remember what's in the book. But I just wondered because it then occurred to me by by analogy that that is something that people have historically done with the other you know all the way back to the kind of like mythic yes. sort of barbarian hordes that are simultaneously scary and kind of romanticized as being free even as though they must ultimately be crushed by society right it, it well it's the idea that the other are there uh, to be the other that they are they are there to define you define yourself us against them so we are not them us versus them and you know um we are civilized they are not civilized um they wear trousers we don't wear trousers whatever and and that and that that sense of certainty of who you are comes from that ability to say those other people they aren't like us and and that that's threaded throughout civilization obviously and kind of amusing how what is us and them what traits can shift over time not anything to do with my book but i i do find it quite fascinating how fantasy races end up being you can really start to boil them down to some uncomfortable racial stereotypes after a while because you have the the ancient very civilized lithe ones who are very pretty a bit effeminate and you know they they have this ancient culture they have this beautiful musical language they're all very attractive you have the you have the elves <laughs> and their culture has generally collapsed in some way they had some kind of fall but they taught they taught all the other all the less their any kind of like lesser race all its culture kind of often came, came from, from it in some them. way um yeah. but but they're they're and it, and it's sort of like wait a minute this this sounds this sounds very orientalist the more you think about it and then obviously orcs and and klingons and space orcs um they're all very i mean they come in two flavors. They come in noble barbarian and barbarian barbarian. Yeah. But but it's which it's, is you know that's a real that's you've got the choice. What are people complaining exactly, about, right? Um, but but you know you have noble savage versus savage savage, and that's that's the same. Um, but but again, you could see where where that. And then you have the dwarves who who love money and <laughs> and and crafting things and and oh oh, it's so uncomfortable when you start thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose to me it always depends on how far, whether if they're just kind of a weaponized metaphor for, you know, cause I, I don't know, like this is where I go all kind of like Tolkien apologist and I really feel like I didn't think that was going to come out of my mouth. But I do feel like there is something to be said for a reading um, certainly in like something like the Lord of the Rings that is and I'm not saying it's not it's not problematic but um where the, actually what we're seeing is kind of like a form of kind of like broadly what? writ psychomachia that we're not supposed to read these off as oh. a racial analogies but rather just the just the ways that one person can kind of split like different oh i i wasn't having a dig at tolkien you're very welcome Um, to he he deserves it right specifically a dig at tolkien was rather more the the genre and the archetypes as a whole across across that that landscape that that imaginary landscape it's less that 
Tolkien did one thing specifically. Um, and, and yes, um, and Tolkien does that. There is a much more psychological reading you can do with Tolkien um, that you can perhaps do less well with, say, D and D. Though, though, I always kind of, uh, I always love to quip that um, that Drow aren't black people. They're you know the Orientals, but but that's a different story. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The, I, I think the Drow versus Elves. Um, for the for for the anyone who is listening who is not been oh, no, you, you uh, who's not familiar with the D and D universe, <laughs> you should just edit out the whole. No thing. way, no way, Gina. I've been I've been waiting for an excuse to to crowbar D- Dungeons and Dragons into uh, my in, into my podcast for for months now. This is wonderful. I'm going to seize this opportunity. I'm um, Drower a dark elves, so basically they're exactly what they sound like they're 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 dark-skinned elves who are also evil evil really and you can tell that they're evil because of their dark skin yes um and so obviously they people often talk about them if you play them in live role play um it gets all very very blackface and it's awful oh my my gosh yeah i was gonna i was gonna say i can see why pathfinder switched them to being sort of pale blue skin yes teal skin well for a while they were purple um but i think blue is probably in aggregate just just don't go there um but that doesn't solve the problem because archetypally um they aren't they aren't the the racial stereotype if you will that applies to them is is the evil oriental nation stereotype the kind of machiavellian (laughs) um oversexed empresses dragon lady type rules them because they're they're a matriarchal society because obviously that's also evil and yeah that's where they've been driven mad (laughs) Um, so so yeah um, drow are is it is it a salvageable concept? I I don't I don't know. But well, I, the question you have to ask then, and I'm really glad you talked about this because we can kind of we I wanted to get onto world building. Of course, uh, just every time you talk about world building, I I don't want to put you up on a pedestal, but I just I'm absolutely wrapped, and I feel like I learned so much. And I, I think that the thing about are drow salvageable is a great question, right? Because the it's like, well, why why can't why would you want to salvage them versus exploring something new why are people so resistant to the idea of making a little clearing a little cultural space to put in an alternative that either rising raising up one that already exists because there are loads Mm. right that are just have been pushed out by the ubiquity of certain tropes or just making up some new ones right i mean the desire to play around with tropes that exist is because they exist and you already have a relationship with them but the mm. danger with that is always that in order to deconstruct something, you always have to construct it. And there's always the fear that no matter how clever you are in your own story, you know, however you critique it and you're you're all very clever about it, you're still contributing to the existence of this trope in, in, in the wider culture. So so you know, you, you write a book basically effectively saying drow are terrible we should bury this trope uh but actually you've written a book about drow and people who love drow read it and all you've done is contribute to their their continuance in the society that you you're living in so i i i i find that quite thorny myself um because yeah i mean i'm super i'm super interested in this as well because i'm, I'm very conscious that directly behind me i've got a copy of um grant uh how it's uh spire um, his his new RPG with Drowin that I haven't read yet or got out the packaging, <laughs> um, and that is an attempt to like you like you say it's is it salvageable? You play Drow, they're an oppressed group, and the High Elves are kind of like the the rulers of the of the city. Now I can't speak to it because I haven't read it yet, but I see what you're saying that you have to accept some of the logic of the trope, even if you don't. Well. Even if you're trying to invert it, right? Yeah, because at some point you you have to engage with a trope because otherwise, why are you using the trope? If and I think there's there's a certain irreducible level of tro- certain tropes that if you deviate too far, people just go, well, that's not the trope. That's why are you calling it that? Um, this thing is no longer the thing that I said it that you say it is, and and that's itself is an interesting can of worms. It's sort of when you you say you know oh yes my. My dragons don't have scales, um, they have feathers, and also my dragons breathe neither fire nor water, they they actually vomit gems, and at some point you're going, well, are they dragons anymore? Actually, I was having a very interesting conversation um, on Twitter uh, yesterday about vampires, because um, uh, jiangshi, which are um, 
so-called Chinese vampires um, are are called vampires. They're often translated as the Chinese vampire, um, and how they they differ. Um, uh, and the conversation kind of drifted towards very much how Jiangshu were not and are not sexy. They're they're very much corpses because they're 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 stiff yes, right yes. they've got like rigor yes, mortis and they, they have they do the hopping thing and they're in my first my first encounter with them actually was probably through super mario land oh, really? right they're like in the they're, they're 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 in the final they're in the final world you can't <laughs> you can't kill them you can only jump on them and they get squashed and then they resurrect um um that they're also in a lot of crossover Hammer horror movies. Uh, the Shaw brothers uh, made a bunch with uh, Hammer. Um, so you've got like the seven, the Legend of Seven Gold Vampires. You've got Vampire versus Vampire. Um, there's a whole bunch of movies where um, the so-called Western vampire kind of meet their Eastern counterparts, um, and bad things happen. So for, for for listeners who aren't familiar with them, could you give us a little uh, description just in case oh, they um, happen across a vampire and they're and they're and 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 they're poor cultural knowledge uh, uh, lead them to make some kind of uh, fatal oh. error? Um, well, Dianshan are, uh, they're, they're like rotten, they're, they're, they're rigor mortis, they hop about, um, they're often clad in uh, Manchurian kind of official robes, so they have the they have the Mandarin square up front, the dark robes, um, the long sleeves that cover your hands, uh, and they have, they have the single braid the queue at the back and they have a law official's hat um and and that kind of brings me to the point about oh and and they are they tend to be less sentient and less kind of consciously um conscious of themselves than uh, than kind of western vampires they tend to be a bit more zombie like and that kind of came to the point of we were making on the thread of archetypally they actually have a lot more in common with the zombie in terms of being an, an unthinking very corpse-like monster but the thing they do sort of have in common with the Western vampire is the idea, or at least the modern conception of the Western vampire, which is they found a very aristocratic, very sexy, very kind of debauched aristocracy idea of the vampire, which is that Jiangshu are in some ways a metaphor for the ruling classes being a bit shit that they're predatory in some way because they are clad in those ancient official robes. You know, you don't have lower status jiangshi. They, they, they don't exist. Like, like the archetypal outfit is, is this aristocratic one or rather this um, official one, which kind of very much squares with that kind of aristocratic idea of the, the vampire who is in this frilly shirt, who has the cloak, who... And they both serve on some level as a metaphor for the way the upper classes... Are, are are unpleasant but they are unpleasant in in different ways um they are monstrous and animalistic and the, and and that idea of their their kind of like feeding yes, on on on, on, on the them. on the life energy of the lower classes it, it, when it's kind of like in those terms as you describe it it feels quite on the nose oh, yeah, doesn't absolutely. it it's kind of like um, they, um, yeah. abraham Vam- um abraham lincoln vampire hunter also kind of plays with this idea both the book and the film are very flawed but that metaphor itself kind of goes <sighs> Oh yes, I, I can see where you're going there, is kind of the um, the point was that uh, the zombie comes from a very different sort of fear, uh, both in terms of the history of the zombie and the, what the zombie has become in kind of, in, in modern literature, is is much more fear of the masses and, and fear of kind of more low status people going in. And it's a, it's, um, it's a very colonial, very... Uh, the earliest zombies were, um, are very much about, are about slaves and about people of colour, mostly black people, and, and fear of those things. And it, it's a very different sort of impulse um, that drives. And obviously, um, when we kind of hit stuff like Dawn of the Dead, there are much more fear of kind of commercialism. And But this, the, the mindlessness is still one that is of the masses rather than of kind of a, a high status above you sort of predatory nature. So I, I, th- I think that in that there is that the tropes are different, which kind of loops you right, right the way back round to the question of, so are they vampires? <laughs> um, what is the definition of a vampire? Is it the traits of blood drinking, being sexy and or not sexy? Or, or is it these, is it the whole being awake at night, running away from symbols of, of divinity, 
Is it that metaphor? That's exactly it, isn't it? It's that, what is the suchness yeah. of, a va- of a vampire? Is, has it got any irreducible core? And if not, and, and yes. then that's the question that we ask as writers that, keep, that can feed whole careers, isn't it? Because then we go, yeah. what can we switch out and what happens when we make these changes? What happens when yes. we have working class vampires <laughs> that, 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 that organise? And rise up. What happens? Where, what? How would you do a high status zombie? How would that work? You know, I imagine it would be some kind of kind of <laughs> kind of like almost worshipped kind of king zombie that followers were bringing food to, right? But immediately stories start to, and whole worlds and whole hierarchies start to spill out of those questions. And those are exactly the questions. This is why I love um, fantasy. I Zombie does quite an interesting it... thing, the TV series, um, because it has more or less all vampire narratives, but by swapping out to zombies and brain eating, the metaphors switch. And it, it's it's really interesting because you have the whole thing with them that um, that they have to... Uh, be predators of humans they have to eat human brains but unlike kind of vampire narratives where you're asking yourself well why like the sort of visceralness and the horror because because blood drinking has frankly become very sexy in a way that brain eating just isn't so just by swapping (laughs) out brains for blood they they have found horror again in that premise which I, i i I really like and um yeah i zombie i i recommend it as a as as what it does with its archetypes of vampires versus zombies that's that's great we're not we're not we're not kink shaming anyone who um uh finds brain eating attractive by the way that's just uh just <laughs> or, or blood for that matter that that's okay too so i just i want to uh, wrap things up now because uh, we've been talking for ages and i'm so cool. grateful for all, all the time you've uh given i i feel like i'm learning so much I just wanted to, and I feel like this is uh, this question is one that we've been kind of working towards, and I'd really like to give you the opportunity to kind of let rip now. But are there any common mistakes you see authors oh. making with world building, or, or if you prefer, some fantastic moments of world building that you've read where you've gone, ah, oh, that's it, that's the that's the juice. I mean, although having said that, it sounds like with Eye Zombie, that was an, a moment where you went. It had bits that you went. Yes, yeah, no, I, yes, I, this is I, I think that that would be one example. Where I think it's it's quite clever in terms of its relationship with archetypes, since we're apparently talking about archetypes today. Where swapping out one detail and using a different mythological beast or horror beast um, has has created a very different textured story that uses the same shapes. So you know they have the whole um, underground network of buying and selling brains, much like you had you would have in any other vampire story common mistakes um i think the easiest one to say is over definition readers generally like to work with you and as a author you often can't think of everything there are worlds are just very very complicated and one of the easiest mistakes to make is to overly define things so if you're writing some kind of sci-fi dystopia and you say oh yes there are um, it's a caste system and there's like seven of them and each of the, ca- the caste system does these things. And, and then you start, and if you've defined very rigidly what each of them are, then your reader can start asking questions and, and, and sometimes uncomfortable ones, which you don't want to answer. Or if you say, ah, oh, yes, um, uh, the entirety of Britain only has one magical school and all the magical children go to that one magical school. Uh, and then you start asking questions of like, but wait, that magical school is in Scotland, but the, the, the train is in London. Do the Scottish kids also go down to London in order to train up? Or or is that is that just a... Th- or because they have instantaneous travel, they don't mind doing that. Or, or maybe it's it's just... I don't know. Um, and what I'm building to is you don't have to define all that you don't have to say there is one magical school in the entirety of the country um because if you don't then people will assume as basically every other reader did um of harry potter that there are other magical schools that there's a magical comprehensive down the road and 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 that this isn't the entirety of the population and allowing your reader space to to fill in the details for you means 
your world is a little bit more plausible. That's a, I think I think as a as a writer, it's difficult. I think in first drafts, you're often telling the story to yourself, aren't you? And so you put in more than you need because you because you don't know yourself. But like taking that out, I think that's such a good piece of advice to give them room to play with the world that you've created. Right? It's it's allowing that kind of vagueness around the edges because once you've kind of pinned everything down. Um, that's usually where, like, if you say, oh, yes, there are only three vampire bloodlines, and then you say that, and then later on someone's going to produce you a um, a family tree that makes, like, that, that will show that, you know, the lineage of your vampires makes no sense because you've not worked it out. And I think it's very easy to make declarative statements like that about, about your world, that there are only ever six of blah, or, or like, you having these very concrete numbers you know everyone in this district is a is a is a farmer or everyone who lives in this area is a coal miner and you could and and you could say well you know in the real world there are places which are are very built around the coal industry but it's not quite literally everyone is a coal miner and that that's where the distinction comes in and things like that where where you're you need to know the limits of where to stop that's perfect thank you Thank you so much. Yeah, I, the final the final thing I wanted to I, I'm gonna say uh, I wanted to ask, and okay. you kind of touched on this at the beginning, but I think it's it's so important for I, I think the listeners, are, you know, people <laughs> write to me a lot about this, and I just wondered if you could touch on okay. it. Okay, you have finished a book, and it is superb. It's rich. It's real. The characters live. Your sense thank, thank of you. words on your ability to write on the line is—it's just exquisite. And you, but you have touched at the begin on the beginning, and actually throughout, you've kind of often kind of like come in with these kind of notes of self-deprecating humour. And I just wondered, do you enjoy writing? And do you ever get stuck? And if oh, so, what do you do? Oh, that's a horrible question. I, sorry, I—I'm uh, stuck now. So, I—I <laughs> I, I really. I really want to give advice of like, oh yes, this is what you do, because because I'm repeating this advice to myself like a magical mantra in hopes that it will get me out of this. But in all honesty, I I'm at that stage where I'm not. It's an article of faith that I will see the end of this, that that I will finish a second book. Um, but and 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 I know that. It's very hard to get sympathy for it because it's like, oh, well, you know, you're, you've, you've finished your first book. So, you know, you could totally do it. But it's. <sighs> yeah, it's, it's very hard to believe right now. Um, so what I say now is less I did it and you can do it, too, and more. I'm trying these things to desperately dig myself out. Um, when everything clicks, writing is magical. It, it, it's beautiful. I, I like seeing the way ideas turn into each other. And I, 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 I get very excited when, when the words all click into place. Um, but it's very easy to obsess over single sentences and individual moments when sometimes it's the big picture of your story that your reader ultimately cares about and walks away with and it's very easy as when early in drafting to kind of kind of think well this this is you know this sentence has to be perfect but then that that's my process allegedly that I need a perfect first sentence otherwise I just just impossible to write the rest I tell myself this as I as I redraft the first sentence a thousand times. That's none of that's useful. Having an ending to aim for is good, obviously. Oh God, endings! What even are endings? One of the things I I found very helpful when writing Pendulum Sun was leaning very heavily on an existing structure and an archetype. A lot of very good writers do this, um, using things like murder mysteries to explore worlds, um, like like a lot of. China Mievel, Jasper Ford, um, you know, they're all very excellent, even fantasists. Uh, and and they're but the, the the actual bare bones plot is 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 a murder mystery. You know, City in the City is a murder mystery. And leaning onto that structure to give you something to 
push forward with was something that I found very helpful with Pendulum Sun to use that and and not be be ashamed of that like your your plotting doesn't have to be the doesn't always have to be very very surprising one final rambling thought is is knowing what the story is and what it's about i think that for me halfway through a story i start going this is just a sequence of events that happen one after the other this is just things and yeah knowing what the story is that it's not just a day in someone's life that it's not just which is which is fine like slice of life stories are a thing and they're they're also cool but knowing what you are writing towards what this is the story of oh god that was all terrible do you know it it wasn't it was really really I'm just, I'm really, really grateful to have you on and get you to share your genuine wisdom with the rest of the group. I'm not even going to provide a condescending explanatory gloss on the end of what you said in less in less coherent terms, because that's how awed sure. I am that I, I don't even feel the need to put a, a cap on it at the end. No, I'm, I feel like that's so useful to me. And I, everything just, you know, I just want you to know everything you're saying resonates with me it resonates with my experience of writing uh, a novel after you know my first one coming out and it and it's what you know a lot of the other authors I've had on the podcast have talked about everyone has second novel doldrums I I know it's it's incredibly incredibly cliche I well I'm I hate to tell you but um people also have third oh, novel doldrums no, I had no. just, Joe Dunthorne on a, a few months ago, he t- he took six years to complete his third novel, oh, and he um, according to him, he several of those years, he hated it every moment. Oh, so, no. um, unfortunately, no. this is something that, that magically we ha- this is gets th- better after the first one. <laughs> I, I think I think it's I think it's I had um Hayley Webster on last week and all she said was that she has learned to trust in the in the process and it is like an article of faith like you were saying and on difficult days it's going to be like hell isn't it it's like and 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 the people will go you'll be fine and you just feel like they are delusional you lose <laughs> yes. a certain degree of respect for them if they go you'll be fine you go you don't know me but you don't know me you don't know what I'm but yeah. having said that I went through exactly the same thing and I did I did finish a, a second novel and there were loads of points where I didn't so all all I will say to you is I know it's I know it's kind of no help at all but all that kind of unknowingness all that kind of like dark see around you if you can rediscover that spirit of (laughs) of curiosity that slightly impertinent audacity that you had as a child that got you into this mess in the first place right that set you out on this adventure and remember that 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 that, that unknowingness is also possibility what you're surrounded by actually is possibility then you will get you'll get through it because you remember that you are the god of this world and you can oh. it will end however you want it to badly everything ends badly <laughs> <laughs> gothic In... tragedy what else do you expect <laughs> um Jeanette, thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate thank your you for time. having me on uh, it's been it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, everyone who's listening, if you'd like to go and buy uh, Jeanette's book, Under the Pendulum Sun, I will, of course, uh, buy from your uh, local independent bookshop if you can get to a bricks and mortar one. But if for whatever reason you can't, I will put a link in the show notes and you will be able to um, get them there. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what's your t- Twitter handle? Uh, Jeanette underscore N, uh, which is, uh, yeah, my name underscore my last name. <laughs> Sure, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Show notes, I think. And thanks to everyone who's listening. And please do, if you'd like to support the podcast, then by all means, share it widely. Subscribe on SoundCloud. Subscribe on iTunes and maybe leave leave a review. Sorry, I know these things are tedious, but they genuinely do help. Thank you ever so much. And all you writers out there, please have a lovely, peaceful, happy week of exploring and writing.